Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. Great art is often produced from tension, the push and pull of forces on the artist. For Grammy-winning composer, singer, and trumpeter Asdru Sierra, there was plenty. Parts of his childhood sound like a fairy tale. He grew up in a jungle with a swan for a best friend, and a famous singer-grandpa who was part of Frida and Diego's Bohemian Nights. Other parts are less on the happily ever after. He also grew up in the gang wars of Northeast LA, with bullets regularly hitting the house and claiming the lives of loved ones. Music saved him. What he learned was that music has the same effect as bullets in terms of the profound impact they can both have on a life. It's just that the result is radically different. One is fatal, and one is healing. Today, we talk about his journey with Ozomatli, a band that's been an LA institution for over 30 years. We also talk about deserving success, how Miles Davis really felt about jazz, and the wisdom of Santana. A note for listeners, this episode contains unbleeped swear words. This is my studio, yes. I was going to say, it looks like it's got little things in the corner there for... Yeah, this is the... This is where the magic happens. Well, have you been? Well, as you've heard, this thing called COVID happened, and uh, it was it was kind of weird for the, for music. Yes. <sighs> yeah, but yeah. it was nice to be home for that long. I haven't had that long of a break. I kind of invited it. It was it was a blessing in disguise. Spies. It was it's just money. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing. I have a house full of pets. Yeah. I got cats. I got dogs. I got. <laughs> my cat's playing the piano. I was going to say, did the cat just jump on the piano? Astro, welcome officially to Hearthside Salons. So good to see you. There's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. But what I wanted to start by just there's something so special about music beyond anything like any of the other arts, you know, beyond painting and, and writing and sculpture and dance and everything else. I had a couple months ago, my friend, Jeff Rona, who's a composer for music uh, movie scores. And he said that music is the one thing that bypasses the brain and it just goes straight to the heart. Like, it's not like every other art form we have, we cognate about it. We're like, I like this, or this feels this way, or right. But music just goes straight in. So you can like, get to someone's heart. I concur. But also since I'm a live musician with the big old speakers, sometimes um, you hit a good bottom tone or something, you can feel it in your chest, in your body. Yes. And it just overtakes you. And depending on the vibrations, there's nothing like being at the stage and and you have that whole bunch of crowd. Yeah. You just do one thing, say, sing one note, and everybody's like, Everybody's like flowers in the garden. Everybody's oh, just wow. like, oh. And when people have their hands up, that's, that's what I love doing too. So like everybody throw your hands up in the air and everybody does. Yeah, there's something about people's hands being up like that. Mm. When they when they do that, it's just like it's like human flowers. It's yeah. Oh, I beautiful. love that. We have a funny history. So first of all, the first album. When that came out, like that, I was living in Colorado and that was like the album of anytime you went to any party, when it was time to get things started, someone would put that on and that like drum thing kicks into the front and everyone would start dancing and like the party would be on. And it was just part of my life. And then when I was here in 2003, I think, working for Paramount Pictures, you guys came and played some, some for some reason. On the Paramount lot. Oh, was that with all the the crazy acrobats and everything? Yeah, it was one of those let's celebrate something cool we did parties that we had on the lot that were legendary. And I was like, these guys. And so I got up to the front. And when you guys finished playing, I went up and introduced myself and we started chatting. And then cut to nearly 15 years later. And we, we catch up randomly in a storytelling class by Lynn Ferguson. And I'm sitting there going, this guy looks really familiar. I don't know. Like, and it wasn't until like, I think the second or third thing until I even put it together. And I was like, 
wait a minute. This isn't just some guy that's in my class with me. This is Azra Sierra. Uh, As if to you. punctuate, the cat jumps on the keyboard again. <laughs> okay. So it was kind of this whole magical thing. It was so like, you know, only in LA, I feel like that kind of thing happens. You grew up in LA and in Mexico or Mexico and LA, right? You, can you talk a little bit about like how you, how you started as a human? Well, as, as a little boy, I was between, I was born in LA and then we left because my grandparents were by coastal or by country. And uh, we would go back and forth from Mexico City to LA. And, uh, but at one point my dad beat up some political guy. We had to run to my, my uh, grand uncle's uh, like ranch that he had mm -hmm. in Tabasco, Mexico. And he had a bunch of workers for him. And I think that's when I told you, my story was the one about the swan. Yes. Which are not native to that area, but it somehow flew south enough. And ended up with a pet little duck when I was little. And I was really bummed because I was really alone. And uh, all the kids in the neighborhood didn't even speak Spanish. They spoke like their native languages. Oh, yeah. So all we could do is, is, is play soccer, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, but it was a jungle where we live you know it's it's where you you see all those big olmec heads that they would find mm -hmm. you know it was basically there a lot of marsh and a lot of pumas and monkeys and like crazy bugs that you could never even think of i remember being a kid and i felt like the city boy somehow got thrown into the jungle <laughs> and that's how i ended up one day i saw a trail of white feathers and i found this little duckling that followed me and i just kept it you know, and uh, I took it home and we were in a truck because my dad went to go get gas. We had to drive really far to go get gas and then come back. And uh, I tried to keep it quiet. It was in my pocket. You know, it just started cracking a little bit like a little like a little bird. And my dad's like, what the hell is that? And it was this, oh, no. And he tried to grab it to throw it out. It's like, no, you know, <laughs> Cause he was like, what are you doing? It's like, and he goes, I want to keep it. I don't have any friends. And he's like, Oh, right. So then I finally, we get to the ranch and my, my, um, my granduncle has, I remember him vividly. He always had like a big hat, you know, mm -hmm. not like a cowboy hat, but like a sun hat. And he always had a pipe and he had these green eyes and, wow. and he would just hang around there and he had this pipe just walking around and, and he had a, a mountain of, a big giant group of, of, of natives all always running. They loved him, you know, because as, as long as you work on his camp, he would take all the kids to school and feed everybody oh, as long nice. as you're working. Yeah. So yeah, he, he had a commune going. You he know? sounds like quite a character. He really was. He really was. He still is. He's still alive. He's like 90. Awesome. But um, yeah. But the thing was, is that he, um, I don't know, he just, ran this place right and my mom's like what are you doing with the duck and he goes eh it's harmless you just have to pick up its poop if you're going to keep it you know and um there was a lot of bugs especially at night so many bugs that i had to we all had to sleep in hammocks because oh, wow. it was just easier to manage with all the bugs yeah, yeah. Um, so but since we had that duck we had no bugs nice and then it grew and it was a giant swan I didn't know. I didn't know anything about animals. So it just grew into this giant swan. I love it. So anyway, I would walk to school and then it would walk with me. It was like taller than me. And it was just like, <laughs> you know, and then it would fly away. And all my friends was like, well, they weren't friends. Some of them were picking on me because I, you know, <laughs> I didn't. So I would come in and would fly and it would meet me outside and walk me back to, to my house, to my grandfather's I love thing. it. Yeah. But the, the sad thing is that it's a swan. So when it came to time for us to, to go home, we drove to the U.S. from there. And uh, I had to leave it behind. You can't, mm. you know, cross the border with a swan, apparently. So right. uh, I my swan. parents didn't tell me until I was like 18. It's like, oh, yeah, we didn't tell you. When you left, it, it just stopped eating and it died. Oh, sadly, yeah. he could have flown himself over the border. Yeah, he could And followed you guys. Yeah. Actually, oh. I do remember us driving away and it could fly. It was flying, following us, wondering where the heck we were going. And it stopped at one point. Yeah. Oh, and God. I was crying. It was, yeah. it was sad. 
Have you, of course, like any kid having to leave a, a beloved animal behind. Is that why you have so many animals now? That's why, well, yes and no. I mean, I, one thing I didn't want to have is a dog or a cat because I wear nothing but black, you know. My kids wanted them and I would leave on the road and I come back and all of a sudden. There's dogs. Got, <laughs> yeah. Dad's gone. Quick, get animals. Yeah. <laughs> So how much of a culture shock was it then for you to then then grow up in L.A.? Well, the only thing that helped me was music. Because every time my parents um, would have a get-together at the house, everybody in my family were musicians. So there was always a time after a few drinks and everything, they'd break out the guitars and everybody singing songs. They break out my grandfather's old records. You know, my grandfather was a singer. Um, his stories were amazing because he was one of the musicians that would always play with Frida and Diego. Oh, my Tejano. God. They called it the Bohemian Nights, Noches de Bohemia. Wow. And my grandfather was one of the musicians that would go to the house and do all the music. And my dad would tell me all these stories of what it was like because my grandmother and him were both songwriters. And... He was a great musician. He was he was really awesome. But there's a lot of a lot of crazy stories behind all of that, you know. <laughs> oh God, you should write those down. Like that could be a film right there. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah, I'd love to like, show you some of those pictures too, man. Yes. Like yeah. You can see my 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 grandfather had a a tumbadora like a conga, you know, mm -hmm. and he had his hair slicked back, all black, and he had a suit on and. He, it was uh, like the Mexican Dizzy Arnaz, you know? Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. It was awesome. How did you get into jazz from there? Because, like, you were you really got into jazz as well as... Yeah. I. Uh, well, my dad loved Herb Alpert. So that's what we heard a lot, or the Tijuana Brass, you know? Yes. And, and also, my dad always loved... Um, if it wasn't the old school Mexican music or Pérez Prado with the big horns. Oh, I love um, that. Is that why you were drawn to brass specifically? Because like, oh yeah, the big old horns that the Bettis brother had. Oh, it was yeah. powerful and big, and it was just like full of life. I love the effect. Yeah, of that. I know? love a brass section so much. Like, like woodwinds could kick it to the curb. I really do not like saxophone or clarinet, but brass and like just guitar, like strings and brass. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, because you know they're arrived when they start playing. It's it's a complete fire. But then one day, my dad introduced me to Miles Davis. And ah, that's a whole different vibe. Yeah, and that that just changed everything. And when I find out all the different metamorphoses of what he did from the beginning, when he played with Bird, you know, Charlie Parker from the Cool Era, from when he played with Gil Evans, and then he went to the. Like Blue and Green is like the quintessential record for anybody. Mm -hmm. Anybody that I introduced jazz to, I would show them Blue and Green. Yeah. You know? That was it was just a great one to introduce people to. And then and then he went to the 60s, late 60s and 70s when we started getting kind of funky and experimental. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was just incredible with all the different ways that he went. And he hated that word jazz. Really? He hated it. Yeah, most of those musicians, like Mingus or Monk, you talk to them about the word jazz, and it's just ah, that's what the DJs called it, so they could give it a label. You know, it was still, yeah, to them it was always just music, and that blew my mind, you know, because yeah. I was like, wow, it makes sense. Like, Miles always hated that word. It's like, why do they call us jazz? Because jazz meant something like anything, like they would say, all that jazz, right? Yeah, it, it was meant as like just like whatever, you know, mm. and Miles felt. Our, the name of what we do is more than just jazz, you know? So it, it makes sense. It made sense. Wow. You know, like how, but they had to call it something in order to sell it. You know? Yeah. I remember uh, when I was a DJ in college, the, the jazz DJs were always, there was a very specific breed of people and they always knew so much about, oh, and then on this track, it's this guy drumming and this guy playing this and this. And I just thought, how do you remember all of these details? You know, when I'm playing Sebado, it's just the band. Like, who cares? You know, and and it was just such a different um, level of care and mm -hmm. interest and just cultivating that knowledge that the jazz guys were into. 
Well, yeah. that was that's what was cool about jazz or just credits in general or looking at albums like vinyl. You could read the lyrics and look at the artwork. It was a full yeah. experience. Yeah. You know, and you could see who did the artwork, who did this, who did the lyrics, where it was recorded and how it was recorded. It, it was an extreme experience before. And when it comes to the sound, like certain pianists inspired different solos for the soloists. And the piano player versus the bass player, it's a conversation. So it's art at a very heightened level. So it's like, it's like eating a cheeseburger and not knowing that there's lettuce and mayo. And if if we when we eat food, we say, Can you leave the tomatoes out and put onions in and grill? Or if you go to a certain place, you're animal style, you know? Sure. Um, that's what music is like for me, you know. It knowing who the musicians are, it gives you a memory. Oh, every time this guy plays, this is what it sounds like. And this that's what I love about that, you know? So that was really important to me back in the day. Like, it wasn't yeah. just a band. It was a whole experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Because it's just, it's so much more. I think I think that probably has to do with why, you know, Ozo Motley specifically is it's got, there's so many more layers and it's got such longevity. Yeah, definitely every record had different personnel in it other than the, the consistent core six of us. Mm. And... Um, there's been different musicians, different MCs, different uh, DJs, different producers, and each record was different because of that, you know? Yeah. And that's why it's so important. Once you go into that depth, you, you realize it's it's different. You can tell when it comes to a pizza when it doesn't have, you know, pe pepperoni or when somebody puts an anchovies in it. Yeah. For me, that's how I see music as well. Tell me about winning Grammys. Like, what's that like? Well, I didn't expect it at all. I remember the first year, the first time we won, I definitely didn't expect it. We were just a bunch of kids from the ghettos in LA, you know. Glassell Park back in the day was not like what it is now. <laughs> right, right. You know? I remember when we showed up, it was right around when 9-11 happened. Mm. And there were sharpshooters all over uh, the place. And they were like straight up. I think I, I remember seeing a tank and a few soldiers wow. and everything. It was, it was weird. It was a weird time. It was right, right in 2001. Oh, when our record came out on 9-11. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So we lost a little bit of umph on that record because there was right. something else going on. Yeah. <laughs> we had, you know? we had a, a bit of a national focus elsewhere. Yes. Yeah, so there was a big happening. The name of that record was called Embrace the Chaos. So so you had no choice but to do that. Yeah. And I remember I was sitting with my 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 wife and she knew we were going to win just in her heart. Mm. She told me, "Why don't you give me $20 for a hot dog because that's how much they are there, you know?" There, of course. Was that day, yeah, you know. And Cause I think you're, I really feel like you're going to win. It's like, no, we're not going to win. And then when they announced us, uh, it was, I mean, was, I remember being Emilio Stefan announcing our, our, our category, even though the title of the name was embrace the chaos. He thought it was a, in Portuguese or something. So embrace the chaos, he said, Amazing. Like, what the hell is that? So I thought it was Manu Chao that one, because that's what we were oh, up against. I love that album too. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, no. Oh, it's us! Gosh. What? You know, <laughs> we couldn't believe it. And I'm walking up, like, you know. And then I went to the back, and there was this um, this bass player I used to play with when I was in college. His name was Charlie Hayden, and this guy, jazz legend. I mean, he was with Ornette Coleman. He himself is amazing. Yeah. You know, oh, love that guy. And I was a student in his class when I went to Cal Arts, and I was in the back, and I. Charlie, man, I can't believe he won. And all he says, like, enjoy the ride, man. Enjoy the ride. I was like, I'm trying to. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that it was it's surreal, you know. I have it and the kids look at it and they for when they were little, they didn't really know what it was. They would play with it. Right. You know, they would that's how that my I think my my daughter would play records on it, supposedly with the dolls. 
you know, amazing that, yes because that's the gramophone you know yeah yeah it's, wow it's weird <laughs> did it did it change how you then approached the subsequent albums or was it like okay we can't let this go to our heads keep on doing what we're doing or for me i had a hard time feeling like i deserved it you mm -hmm. know I think it was just uh, how I grew up and where I'm from. It was like, it's great. But I, f I always felt like, how do we win this? Somebody threatened somebody or something, you know, for us to win it. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. And, and, but we, we won it. And it was, it was, it was a trip. And that's when I started realizing that people knew who we were. Cause when we were touring around that time and still for a time after that, I mean, there was four people to a room at some crazy motel wow. i remember one we sometimes we would uh because it was like eight to ten of us that we would tour at a time we would get into the hotel room take off the mattress and some of us some of us would sleep on the box spring and some of us on the mattress oh my and, God. We, and we would flip coins to see who would who would share the mattress and we share the box spring and um and there was a few times when we would take off the mattress, we saw something underneath the mattress and we're like, you know, it, that's what life was like. It was, it was scary, you know? Yeah. Um, but man, we did not expect that. We were tired. We were definitely a lot younger, so we could hang, we could hang a lot more, but life was very different, you know? So, yeah. But I do believe that the Grammys have nothing to do with album sales, especially Eric Cat. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it does not, I mean, people really knew who we were and they liked us. We ended up being in movies. And we were like, we were in uh, Never Been Kissed with Drew Barrymore. Oh, from, yeah. From yeah. So we were like the, the, the cats meow for a while, you know, like there would be all these actors and shit coming to our, our, our stuff. And all sorry, I just cussed, but yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, we would have all these actors come and they come to our shows in LA and it was like the the hip thing because these guys were really yeah. funny, you know. And they would come down, but Drew was so cool. She's such a queen, man. She's totally She's humble and cool. Yeah. She drove she, she drove an old crown vic for the longest time, like super famous, and she still drives this old beat up crown vic. I'm like, that girl. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, man. <sighs> that was a trippy time. Yeah. After that, things just kind of went from, it took a life of its own. Yeah, I would, because I was going to say, like, you know, you have all these, like, street signs and don't mess with the dragon, and then all of a sudden, Happy Feet, and, like, then yeah. did Ozo Kids come out of Happy Feet, like, and that kind of stuff, or how did Ozo Kids come about? Well, Ozo Kids came out when we realized that fans weren't coming to our shows on Wednesdays anymore, <laughs> you know, because everybody started having babies. Yeah. And we realized what's going on is I go, well, I'm having kids. I guess everyone else is too. And you don't want to be one of those parents, you know, one of those moms that goes out on a Wednesday night all night, you know, when you're, when your kid starts calling grandma mom, you know, it's like, uh. yeah. <laughs> but that's, um, that didn't happen. Our fans are not like that. So uh, eventually we thought, well, you know, maybe we should do music. Cause I realized for me, Sometimes kids like music that I don't like listening to. Yeah. You know, it's like some of that kid music. I just want to, I want to punch a baby after a while. You know, <laughs> you know, I was like, I can't hear that song again. You know? Yeah. So we try to make a, a kid's album that the parents group to as well. You know? Nice. Cool. Yeah. It was cool. That was a lot of fun. That project took us on Yo Gabba Gabba. That's amazing. That's yeah. like, you got a whole nother ex exposed to a whole nother set of fans. Because, yeah. like, when kids absorb stuff at that age, it's like, that's it. You're in for life. Yeah, definitely. And some sometimes we do a double show at, at like, for at the Fillmore, for example, in San Francisco. And, and the parents come with their kids. And that show sold out because at, at the Fillmore, they sell boobs at the kids' show. Amazing. So the parents are like, woo! Parents like, best show ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. But it's cool. Hey, man. You know? Well, yeah. So then how did you go from there to being a cultural ambassador for the U.S. State Department? Like, how uh, did that happen? Thanks to NPR. Oh, I love um, NPR. We had a, we had an interview on NPR, and the State Department basically are a bunch of hippies. 
that that kind of want to make the world a little better. They're the only ones in the whole, <laughs> you know, yeah. they kind of like going to all these different countries and doing the real hard work. My impression of it was government would kind of screw this country up and then they would bring the State Department to try to make it nice, you know? Yeah. So Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Louis Armstrong, they were the ones that did this too, being cultural ambassadors. I did not know that. State Department, yeah. They have a big history about that after World War One, World War Two, after Vietnam. You know, a lot of these great musicians went there. So musicians from those countries would come to the states, and the musicians from the states would go there and just yeah. do a cultural interchange to see, like, yes, we're human. This is yeah. here's our art. You know, here, rest of the world, please don't hate us. We have cool musicians. Yeah, there's there's cool people in the country too. You know. Yeah. So that that was a big one, and we didn't wear suits or anything. So people looked at us like, hmm, "Who are these people? What are they trying to do?" You know? Oh, where we go? We went to yeah, like- the Middle East. We went to uh, Egypt right before the uprising. Wow. Uh, we went to um, Jordan. We went to almost every place that had a bomb in it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, we went to uh, we went to so many places that. Um, for example, I remember playing in Jordan and there was a Palestinian uh, refugee camp in Jordan and uh, they just wanted to get away from there. And one of the biggest memories I have there is at one point there was this group of kids between 12, 10, 12, 14 years old. And they look at our flyer and they ripped it, and they spat on it. And they were like saying something. And they're like, well, for me, it was like, looks like they want to say something. Bring them yeah. over here. You know, and and we were like, yeah, what's up? You know, so they tried to speak to us and our translator, you could tell who hired him because he was trying to like change what they were trying to say questions. So we're like, that's not what I can tell that that's not what they're saying. You know? Yeah. And then but they spoke English enough and and they basically said to us, why do you let your friends blow up my brother? Oh, God. And his thing was, is that a helicopter came. He was playing ball with his little brother. And whatever bomb they threw at them made his brother explode in front of him all over his body. So this, that was the experience of what we had to like face at that time. Right. And this, a lot of this stuff didn't make it to the news about the sure. conversations with these guys and stuff. So... I mean, what can you say to this kid? Right. You know, and, and I told him, look, man, I know I may not seem like much. I'm from Northeast LA. I've seen people blow up in front of me too. Not like you, you know, I, but I had people bleeding in my arms, you know, yeah. my brother died in my arms, you know, and I, I, I totally feel what it's like to lose a brother like that, you know, wow. but not the same. And I'm not going to compare my pain to yours. Yeah. But we're here to make a difference at least. And I'm hearing your story. And even though he was still kind of like looking at me sideways when we were saying all this stuff, I could see him, okay, I was heard. Yeah. So my job is to just tell that story, the, just the down-home human side of it, you know? Yeah. I know there's two sides to every story. There's... I'm sure there's one side and the other and it's usually the truth. But the point is, is that something like this should never happen to children. Yeah. No one should have to experience this. No. And I mean, at least we could we could say that story. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we learned with Lynn, right? It's like people just want someone to listen. Like we want someone to witness our story. And the act of listening is the greatest gift. Yeah. It's acknowledgement of that somebody matters. Not yeah. more than other people, but just matter in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, I'm glad you touched on on your brother, on Raul, because I wanted to ask about, like, I remember you telling that story and, like, it feels really trite to ask, how did that change you? But how did it feel? How did it influence what you created after? Well, music always had something to heal me with you know for me it wasn't just some experience that you hear and it wasn't just pleasure 
um, I lived in a rough neighborhood and in a rough time, you know, pre and post, you know, riots in LA from the 92. Mm. And one thing I do remember is that there was a war going on in my neighborhood and people were getting killed, mostly kids and, and bullets don't care how old you are. Right. Once they get shot out, you know, we got used to, in a weird way, drive-bys or yeah. any kind of shootings or the war that was going on. So whenever my my family would hear, you know, cars screeching around and you hear some shots, we would automatically go on the floor, sit on the floor next to the beds um, to make sure, get away from the windows to make sure yeah. that bullets come whizzing around. And they would. They would go, they would hit the house. Jesus. They would hit the bullets or hit our cars. And it was just the time and place where we lived. You know, it was mm. it was a very violent place. And a lot of these guns, you know, where do they get these high-powered rifles and stuff? And how do kids end up with them? You know, it's just still an important human question. Corruption. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's human corruption. It leads to all of that. You know, but the thing that would help me at least soothe my soul as a kid, you know, when I was 12 and 13 and this stuff was happening. So my dad bought me a Walkman, a Sony mm. Walkman. I had I, make, I had a Sony Walkman too. And he would, I would make my own uh, tape mixes and I would listen to music. And while all this stuff was happening, as soon as I hear the car screeching, I would put on my headphones and I would just, it would just muffle the sounds of it all and it would help me get yeah. through it music did that for me so i would hear santana i would hear you know miles davis i would mm. hear all this different music i would hear you too i would hear music that was just something from the soul just for that moment it would heal me you know and cover me from the sounds of violence outside my house so growing up for me that's what music meant you know a certain sense of rejuvenation or healing. Mm. So that's if if I could do that for one kid somewhere, yeah, then I would be honored because that's what music is for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like you did that to some extent to that for that boy that day, and I hope so. <laughs> oh my God. And the hands when you talk about the hands going up in the crowd, it's like you know. You know, I don't want to get too corny, but it's like receiving healing. You know, it's like it's like a, it is because music is so healing and it's so unifying. Yes, yes, yeah. it is. Music is powerful. That's I, that's one thing I remember when we were in the '90s when we first started touring with Carlos Santana. Uh, we would have our own little parties in, in our dressing room, and he would come in and hang out with us. You know. He's just that cool of a cat, you know? Nice. But he was also a king, you know? He was like a giant lion walking around, quietly and surely. And he would sit there and we'd be listening to music and we'd put on uh, Bob Marley. And he goes, one thing, one good thing about music, when it hits you, you feel okay. It, you know? And he stops everybody. And, oh, he's going to talk. Oh, shit. So he paused the music. Do you know what Bob was talking about in this song? He was a good friend of mine. I knew him. And he told us a story before there was rock docs or anything um, about how the day before he went into, I think it was Trenchtown. I, my, I'm messing it up, but but his whole crew, his band got shot. Oh my God. Somebody went to their house and shot up their, shut up their whole house. And he got hit. And his wife, Rita, did too. She still had a bullet uh, lodged in her head. Oh my that God. Her brain, yeah. So... But he still went on the next day. He thought that they thought maybe that he would be deterred to not go on. Mm -hmm. And but he went on stage anyway. And his message was basically in that song. There's one good thing about music is when it hits you, you feel OK. Basically yeah. saying that music has the same effect as a bullet, but not the same result, not wow. the same fatal result. It's, a, it's the same strength of a bullet but when it hits you you're still okay wow well and i just for you saying that you'd made your walkman mixtapes and santana was on them and then you're playing for, with him opening for him was that just like oh my god dream come true 
Yeah, I think a lot of it was, I, I had a hard time believing I deserved that moment, <laughs> you know, but, um, but he was a family man. The whole crew was family, the band. So, and they saw me and my wife, we were in our twenties and she had a belly going from our first child, you know, and they all sat us down. They probably looked at us like babies having babies. Yes. But we, uh, yeah. You cute, you cute kids. Oh, you have no idea you. what's coming. Yeah. But he knew it was going to be a boy because we didn't want to know. And uh, one time before he went on, because they would put the lights on, they put a Miles Davis track on before it goes on. Everybody's got flashlights lighting away and you have to kind of like part the ways for him to make to the stage. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting there uh, with my wife with a big belly. And he comes up and he sees us and he goes, is it okay if I touch your belly? And she goes, of course. And she touches the belly and he's like rubbing those. And I believe your son is going to be La Luz. He's going to be the future. He's going to bring people together. And then one of his minions says, Carlos, you got to go up on stage now. And he just stops talking. It's like I'm in the middle of a prophecy here, guys. Hold on. Dude. And, he, and the guy's like, I'm sorry, Carlos. You know? <laughs> and we're like, oh, you know? And then, um, and he kept talking and he, and he said all these really wonderful things. And he went up on stage and they always set a chair for my wife, wherever she was. And, um, we got to meet, meet, um, all the wives, all, all the people. I met, um, Salvador Santana, who was a little kid back then. And, um, uh, I work with him now on different projects. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's been a very beautiful, uh, family experience ever since, you know? So great. So tell me about, tell me a little bit about Abstracto and working with oh. Balthazar Getty. Like what? Yeah, Balt is actually uh, a really good friend of mine and our kids know each other. They're friends. I hear them yelling at each other all the time when they're playing those video games. You oh, know? Yeah, and, yeah. and I was like, get my six, get my six. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> and, um, to this day, they still play together and they still hang out just online. It. It's a trip. Life's it's trippy. But yeah, our friends, our kids were always friends. And then we just hung out and we was, we got to do some music together. And he goes, oh, yeah, man, no worries. Because he grew up around in L.A. I mean, he was always around yeah. all the music. He loved music. When nobody knew he was a Getty, you know, nobody. Right. Really, nobody, because he was just too ghetto. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. He really was, you know, and uh, he's just cool. Like, I, I remember I was at this school uh, with my kids because we took him to this private school to, that we both had our kids at. And he, and I would hear on the side, what's up, it's like, oh, it's bald. <laughs> Talking like I'm trying not to, so I don't scare the parents, you know. <laughs> and uh, but it was him and he was like, what's up, man? Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I love Paul. He's, he's like a, a homie for life. He really is. And um he funded a, a record um, abstracto with him on it, and he was just basically my my coach. He was my he approached it in such a way that I just to make sure he everything was like you could do better than this, or you know what you're thinking too much, or you know he he was always that guy, and he knew how to do it and talk to me in a way that I could listen, and uh, he's just an amazing producer. He really is. And on this SP-1200 that he has, it's this old-school um, hip-hop machine, I guess the most I could say, mm -hmm. that it was, you can make beats on. I have never seen anyone move around that machine like the way he does. Honestly, wow. like, he's... Nobody knows, like, you know, the, the hidden talents that this guy has, you know? He's a great actor, too. You know, Lord of yeah, Lord the Flies, you know? He's the kid that gets killed by Mallory and Natural Born Killers. And oh, yeah, yeah. How how is the music different from Ozo Motley or? Well, the, the what makes it different is I get really artsy in it, like super artsy, and uh, Bolt made it possible for me to do that because to me it was cinematic music. I went to school to not only do jazz, but I wanted to be a a, a film composer, film and TV. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing these past few years, mostly that. That's what I was going to ask next about, so. Yeah, it's a good segue. How is it different for you to being, you know, a live musician, a performing musician versus composing for 
screen? Like what, what else do you get out of it? I get to be able to create an intensity um, to enhance what you're watching. Because when you're a film composer, you're providing a service to somebody else's canvas. You know, it's a collaborative effort. And I actually enjoy it like a lot. You hear awesome. my dog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what uh, really surprised me because as a director, I thought, oh, I have everything thought of. I know everything I want for this. And then I turned it over. I had temp music in, you know, that whole thing. And I, of course, had fallen in love with it. And I gave it to my composer and was so blown away by what he came back with. It wasn't anything like where I thought music should go, what, like what, and it was like, he managed to pull a whole nother level of the story out that I didn't realize was even there. I mean, it was such a cool collaboration. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine what Star Wars would have sounded like without John Williams doing that music? What if it was a different composer? What if it was like Mike, Mark Mothersbaugh, you know, or my cat? Or your cat. That would you be know, really abst abstracto right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, music really, uh, it's one of the, the things that grabs the most senses. You could yeah. feel it, you could see it, you could, you could, everything but smell, I guess. It, like but I said, it goes straight to the heart. It bypasses your cognitive brain and goes straight to the heart. Oh, yeah, definitely to the heart, right into the soul. More like, yeah. you know, um, I've been doing a lot of thrillers and dramas and like scary movies, thrill, uh, horror films. And I get some crazy sounds, you know, um, and I just create them all here in my room and like I got this sound, I recorded my cat doing a meow and I tuned it down and I did all this crazy stuff to it. And it sounded like this creepy, weird growl because she has this gruffy growl like that. And I turned it down. Oh my God. And I put all this delay on it and everything. I was like, what is it? That's incredible. Is that like a synthesizer? No, man, it's my cat. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it sounds like a really fun creative outlet for you. That's totally a new, like a new play, playground, a new sandbox. Yes. Yes, it's a playground. Music has to be a playground or else it's just work, you know? Yeah. That's what I love about doing movies because you could play with it. You're in a big playground, you know? Yeah. I sit here with the director and I'm showing him what I'm doing and he just goes nuts. And we're just like two kids in a candy store, you know? I love that. Or, or two adults at the Apple store with a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and tell me about Trio Retro. Trio Retro. Uh, trio Retro. That's like a tip of the hat project, but um, with these two amazing musicians. Yeah. Um, it's, really we're doing. I'm impressed by how global it is and how like all these different influences come into it. Cindy Cindy Gomez is the Colombian princess on it. She sings fluently. And speaks like six different languages. Um, she's French Colombian. Wow. Her, I guess, her family, her parents met working international jobs for, I think, for the UN or something fancy like that. Yeah. And uh, so she became fluent in all these different languages. So she sings in Mandarin. I saw her on some gig singing in Mandarin. She's She's a trip. So it's an international jazz vocal jazz project. And uh, well, and then there's Anthony Marinelli, who's another film composer. He like, do you remember that commercial? This is your brain. This is your brain oh, on yeah. drugs. He did the music for that. Oh my God. He was also 16 or 15 years old when he brought in his his arc, the synthesizer. And they didn't want to use um, the helicopter sounds they had. Uh -huh. So they called him. He was like this prodigy kid that used, knew how to work with synthesizers. So in Apocalypse Now, when you see the helicopters go, that's him with a synthesizer making that sound. No way. Yeah, he was 16. And they had some other guy that was famous and known for stuff like that. But he couldn't do what this kid could. That's so that was, that was his, like his first gig when he was like 16, you know? Just apocalypse now, it's fine. Yeah, Don't worry about you know. it. And ever since then, he did commercials too. Do you remember that one Apple computer commercial that was the laptop and it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the middle seat in a plane? Oh, yes. 
he did the music for that too. <laughs> that was that like, one. he did all of those. And, and he's just, he was like the musician that worked with Bon Jovi on, on Young Guns. Oh my he's God. Like, he, he, he always did all these really cool stuff, you know? That's Anthony guys, Marinelli. Are you, do you have any songs in Italian? No, but that's I, what we've been working on. Uh, I but was then looking COVID and I was like, I was like, you guys, come on, hook me up, get some Italian in there. Yeah, we haven't officially released the music, but we put a couple of things on, on YouTube because then, you know, COVID happened and we thought, you know, but we have a whole bunch of, of original material, too. And we just haven't been able to do anything since COVID happened. You know. Well, I liked what I was seeing about just the, the live recording style where it's like the old school way of like, like, that's just yeah. it's more fun. Like, yeah. And, you know, you go into your one thing and you're alone playing to the track or whatever. Yeah, we were looking at each other the whole time doing it and we had to do it all live and we had to practice and actually sound good at the same time, you know, uh, but it was great. Like grownups, really like real musicians. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about this anyway, but like music is, it's another way of telling a story. So when you're composing a song, whether for any of your various outlets, what are you... Like, what are you reaching for? What are you hoping to say? If I may be so broad. I remember I learned when you communicate with people, it's not what you say, but how they felt when you left the room. Yeah. And that's, for me, that's the only thing I have is music. It's, yeah. It's how they feel when they leave the room that's important. You know? Yeah. Which is what you were talking about with touching people's souls and you know the bullet that's powerful that you know leaves a good thing instead of a bad thing yeah it's super powerful what you could do with music um, that's the best way that i know how to translate emotion behind a word other than art you know yeah but it's seems to be direct you know for me when it comes to music yeah i love it I have, a, I have a question from a fan. He oh. asks, what inspired the Mexico to Jamaica album? Ah, well, number one, we had an opportunity with Sly and Robbie, which are the two, uh, like, those are the main producers out of Jamaica <laughs> that almost everything you hear, if it's not Bob Marley or it is Bob Marley, these guys had some sort of involvement out of every reggae record you hear out there. But that wasn't the only thing they did. They, they produced all sorts of pop acts and everything. Like, uh, for, for example, they both worked and played on Underneath It All with No Doubt, Gwen Stefani. Wow, yeah. And they're the ones playing on that, you know, bass and drums. But Rob, Sly and Robbie are like this dynamic duo of producers yeah. that they really have a sound and a groove that is just Jamaica and in such a flavor that the whole world just likes it, you know? And we yeah. did this record with them. So, and we wanted to do uh, cover music of all these classics in Spanish that were, you know, from me growing up in Mexico. And like, for example, Besame Mucho was written by a female Mexican woman who, a female Mexican woman. A female Mexican woman. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm learning all the terms, you know. Uh, my kids are really schooling me. At, at the time when it was such a male-dominated world, she was probably, her song got translated into 75 different languages. It's probably one of the highest-selling yeah. songs in the world. And, and that's nothing to sneeze at because... The Spanish language is the second most spoken language in the world. Mm. So, I mean, even the Beatles did a version of it. Yeah, I was going to say, you could play the opening to that song anywhere in the world and people would know yeah. what you're doing. What a cool adventure. Yes, it is. Music well, is an adventure. Yeah. So you taught... I don't know how you feel about this, but you've, you've said a couple times that you... Um, like you didn't feel like you deserved your Grammy. You didn't feel like you deserved some of this stuff. What what do you feel that you deserve? Just to have fun doing music. You know, I mean, 
I'm grateful that people pay me to dance around and I'm here. I'm a big old Mexican with a gray beard and people still pay me to go up on stage. I'm grateful. So good. Um, I used to be the typical tortured, self-doubting, self-crippling doubt artist since I was yeah. a little kid. That's just who I was. And I'm, these days I'm just grateful now, you know, like, yeah. wow, that's cool. So I'm just grateful when I meet somebody that knows who I am. It's like, really? You know what I am? Cool. Yeah, picture? Really? Oh, okay. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like so many of us have that, like, you know, they're going to figure out I'm a fraud or the imposter syndrome of like, I love what I do. I feel good about the art I create, but is it, I still don't like, there's still that like, Oh, they're going to figure out I don't deserve to be here or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of it. I remember having these conversations with, of all people with Carlos, you know, and he brought it to my attention and one very direct conversation is he said, it's because of where I grew up, how I grew up. And yeah, uh, in so much time, I guess, like seeing all the craziness that was happening around me in the hood, you know, I felt like I didn't matter very much. And mm. If you get told that enough when you're a kid or you're, so you see how things are in school, you start to believe that you don't matter. So you start behaving like you don't matter. That's why hoods are like that, you know, because yeah. no one else gives a shit. Why should I, you know? So Carlos would tell me, you know, it's like, it's because of where you were. And yeah. He just taught me how to say thank you, you know, and and to accept it and just enjoy it. Enjoy the moment and keep doing it and everything will fall into place. Yeah. What a valuable lesson or bit of wisdom. Yeah. He told me a funny story once that how he found out he wanted to play guitar as well. I was praying to God, what shall I do with my life next? I was 16 years old. And then he just stayed there and he prayed because he was with his dad and his mariachi. You know, and I don't want to do mariachi music. So he's praying and then this truck comes and it hits a bump and poof, this box falls out of the back and it's a guitar. Come on, no. Guitar it. And he opens it and he goes, okay, God. No. That's what he told me, man. That's like, really? ridiculous. I hope that's, that's true awesome. because that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I love that he tells stories like that. Wow. Yeah, I think he would mess with me sometimes too. Because I, with some of the conversations we would have, he was like, you know, yeah, so how do you feel today? And I go, well, you know, I always feel like meow, you know, like uh, I, feel, I don't think I did a good show yesterday. I'm just struggling because, <laughs> you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know what? You got to connect with your music. Look, close your eyes. Go, okay. It's a string between your heart and your mind. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Close your eyes. I will close my eyes. It's like, I'm trying to feel it, man. Just keep doing it. Sit in silence. I go, okay. And I kept doing it. I kept doing it. And I opened my eyes and he was gone. <laughs> but it's true. Like he put you in a good <laughs> meditation and then he's like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> I've, I've dropped enough wisdom on this kid for today. Yeah, yeah. He was messing with me too. Like, oh my God. Rad. <laughs> I love that so much given how far you've come and all these different parts of your roller coaster that you've been on, if you were standing in front of your 13 year old self right now, what would you want him to know? What would you say to him? Go easy on yourself. Try your best not to drink and do drugs. Picked a tough uh, business for that, but yes. There's plenty of guys to do without it. I mean, David Bowie was sober for so many years. And he helped a lot of other guys, but it's stuff that you never hear about. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But there's plenty of people behind the scenes that help if you're willing, you know? That's great. Yeah. But yeah, I would have taken I would have taken it easy on myself a little more. I would have taken a business class too. I would yeah. tell myself, just take one business class, learn some contracts before you sign that crap. We could all do that, I think. My my dad my, used to say the same thing. He's like, go be an artist, but take a business class. Oh, I have a friend who's a lawyer, and he always says, you know what? Everybody's playing the game, but only we know the rules. <laughs> well, your friends are good to have, especially in this town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what a few free tickets will give you. <laughs> yes. Well, there is that. You You have that unending well of stuff to give from. 
So what are you working on now? What are you looking forward to as we, as we fingers crossed, wrap up this stupid pandemic? I've been working on a lot more films and TV and I'm really enjoying that a lot. Good. And people are starting to like hire me a lot more for stuff like that. And at the same time, I'm like, really? You like what I do? That's cool. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's been awesome. I've done like during COVID time, especially, I've done like six films. And, wow. And a few TV shows, worked on different different TV shows. Um, there's a redo of something that I signed an NDA for that is incredible. And I'm really excited about it, that I, that I, I, I wrote some music for some episodes on it. And I am so excited, and it's, it's such a nostalgia awesome. thing for me when I was a kid that they're bringing back in a really cool way. But okay. it's already been out, but, but I think everybody knows about Rosalind Sanchez being Rourke's daughter in Fantasy Island, you know? Oh, my so goodness. I got called in wow. to do some Yeah, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so excited about it because the stories are so cool. And that that TV show was one of my babysitters, you know. Besides Gilligan's Island. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gilligan's Island, man. I'm more of a Marianne guy than a Ginger guy. That's good. I always identified more with Marianne because Ginger yeah, was I, like this. Un, she was unattainable as a as a young girl who like didn't like. I grew up with my dad, so it's like I didn't have anyone to teach me how to put makeup on or anything like that. So I was like, I'm this girl. I'm not that girl. I don't. I don't get that. Yeah, yeah. Marianne was. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Hmm. practical girls we make all the sense yeah she's the one like i don't want somebody to trip out to walk on the grass because she has heels on just marianne will just take off her shoes and says, let's go yeah <laughs> you know that's uh, right and she'd you know be able to make a make a fort out of something when you got there yeah you'd be fine yeah she don't like my getting her hands dirty that's right you know? and those pigtails did it for too <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for just sharing your heart with me. I really appreciate it. Ah, I'm grateful. I'm happy you you wanted to talk to me and record it for an hour or so. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really appreciate your time. And I was realizing, you know, it was really funny. Um, when I looked back at our emails and you had it was when you first put out your t-shirt and I and we had that exchange about like I'm gonna get the t-shirt, whatever. And I was looking at that email going, I don't have an Astro t-shirt. What, what, did he never send it? And all of a sudden I went and looked at them and I'm like, oh my God, I wore that shirt so much that it ended up getting holes in it. And I had to, I had to throw it away. And I was like, so not only did I, did I have it, did I get it, but like wore the crap out of it. So I was like, that's it. I'm ordering another one. So I'm very excited. And uh, this is the Astro shirt. Yeah. The one that's whether your name is in a trumpet. Yes, that one? My, I love that. That was actually designed by a very, very good friend of mine, uh, Edwin Aguilar, who was um, one of the co-directors for The Simpsons for many, many years. He was from out here in the hood, you know, in L.A., and he just passed away a month oh, ago. Oh, my God, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Makes it even more special to have that piece that you always have from him. Yeah, so... What, whatever shirts are out there, those are the last ones. Oh, man. All right. Yeah, that, that's a very special. His story is amazing. You would have loved talking to him. He's just... That. when He's from El Salvador originally. He was uh, a child soldier in El Salvador. And oh, my escaped. God. And he came here to the States uh, after, after all that. And then somehow he got into drawing. And he started working you know, with Hanna-Barbera and then eventually graduated into the Simpsons and was working there all the way to his very last days. Wow. That, what a life. Oh my goodness. An incredible human being. He really was. And I'm grateful to have known him. And called well, him a yeah. I feel like you, because of who you are and the light you have, you, you bring these people into your orbit. So <sighs> yeah, well, that's a life well lived, life well lived, my friend. That, that was me, not the cat. Live <laughs> composing for the for the film of this. Yeah. The best part Sorry. is the serious face to camera while you're doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm.
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll hopefully see you in the real world one of these days soon. Yes, definitely. Good luck with everything. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Next time on Hearthside Salons, figuring out the craft of filmmaking is a lot. Figuring out how to take the thing you poured your heart and soul into and get it out to an adoring public can be even harder. For filmmaker Clarissa Jacobson, a successful festival run gave her an idea. Write a book about everything she learned to make it easier for others. We'll talk about film festival strategy, dealing with rejection, and the importance of kindness. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well. <laughs>